As you're turning there, I'm going to let you know that today we're going to complete Genesis chapter 4. We're going to look at the last two verses of Genesis chapter 4. And, and this is quite an accomplishment. We, we consider it always a milestone to finish a chapter in the book of Genesis. For those who may not know, we began Genesis in the, in the month of January, the very beginning of the year. And so we've taken our time to get through every issue that needs to be focused upon in this book. Especially in the, in the, in the areas of creation uh, versus evolution. We've done quite a bit of that already. We're going to do even more as we get into chapters 5 and 6, which are coming up very soon. Uh, when we deal with pre-flood and flood issues and the, the geology of the flood and, and all of that. So we've we're still got a, a lot to do. And we're going to do that until we get to chapter 11, because uh, those are the most critical chapters in all of the Bible, uh, Genesis 1 through 11, because in Genesis 1 through 11, uh, this is where either the world, uh, the scientists, and and, uh, liberal uh, professing Christians say, this is probably just myth or legend. We believe it to be the word of God. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth just like he said in six literal 24-hour days. And uh, there's more, you know, even though we believe that by faith, there's, there's more proof to that than there is to believe that he created everything over billions and billions of years. But again, if you didn't get the earlier parts of it, just get some CDs from before. And, or just wait because we're going to talk about it again. Okay. Genesis 4, verses 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, said she, has appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son. And he called his name Enosh. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Shall we pray? Father, we ask for the anointing and blessing of your Holy Spirit this morning. For indeed we desire, Father, to understand how critical and important these two verses are to the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout all of the existence of this earth as well as into eternity. We ask, Father, that you would grant us that wisdom and understanding. Lord, that the information that we receive from this, Lord God, will be something that we will mull over, but we'll also, Lord God, trust that you, by your Spirit, are indeed teaching us for the sake of coming to greater understanding of all the issues that we've covered so far and will cover in the book of Genesis. We thank you for it, Lord. We ask you to bless our time now in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. You've probably heard this expression, when the night is darkest, the stars shine the brightest. And that brings to mind another phrase that goes hand in hand with the same idea. When the outlook is gloomy, the uplook is encouraging. When the outlook is gloomy, the uplook is encouraging. You see, in chapter 4, we've been focusing our attention on the, on the ungodly seed of the culture and society spawned by the secular humanism of the murderous Cain, uh, 
who rejected and defiantly left the presence of the Lord to try to find his new beginning without God and founding a new civilization built upon the corruption of sin and suspicion. The encouraging part of the chapter, of course, is found in these two verses which make up our text for today. For it is here that we now focus our attention on the culture of the godly. Now, as the world of the ungodly began to take shape, it's important for us as believers in God and in Christ to remember that the Lord never leaves himself without a witness. The Lord never leaves himself without a witness. And so from generation to generation, in step with the unfolding seed of the wicked, a matching set of godly men and women would keep pace. And it's always been that way. And so the beginning of Genesis chapter 4 presented the account of the ungodly line of Cain and his descendants. When the night is darkest. While beginning at verse 25 and extending actually through chapter 5, we are presented with the account of the godly line of Seth. The star shine the brightest. So the two chapters together paint a picture which Francis Schaeffer labeled in one of his books, as the two humanities. Two humanities on this earth, living side by side. Two humanities, the ungodly and the godly. I hope and pray you know which one you're in, and that it's in the right one. (laughs) But to a certain degree, the worldly culture, as we saw last time, the worldly culture could boast of its pleasures, sensual and otherwise. It could boast of its pleasures and of its prosperity and of its power due to its industrial and cultural and military and even sensual sophistication. Not to say that all of that stuff that, uh, that came about during that, uh, that particular time, you know, the industry, the tent making, the, the music and the culture, uh, the, the arts, and, and, uh, but then again, of course, the sensual aspects too. That any of that stuff was, was you know, uh, bad. Well, I mean, we've been all affected by it. It's all been good if we use it for the right reasons and use it properly. So the, the world could boast of all of these things, but the godly saints who, from the world's perspective, accomplished nothing, uh, contributed nothing, and invented nothing, when you read that account from verse 25 on into chapter 5, they simply live for God. They simply live for God. It doesn't, it doesn't say anything that boasts of, of any accomplishments that they did. The world will see that. The world does that today. The world looks at the church and at the Christianity and they say, well, these guys, all they do is they're just troublemakers. We're better without them. I say to the world, don't worry. In a few, you know, in days to come, you'll be without us. But that just means the end is near. You've accomplished nothing. You've contributed nothing. You've invented nothing. That's all from the world perspective. But what have we done? What has the the godly line done? Live for God in everything. Whatever it is that God has given us to give to the world. Everything. 
If you consider all of the great inventors and all of the great artists and musicians and whatnot down through the ages, many of them, if not most of them, but many of them at one time, did everything to the glory of God. Every invention to the glory of God. Every music, uh, musical piece written to the glory of God. Even in the arts, it was done to the glory of God. So there's always been this battle between the secular and the sacred. Always. And we saw that last time, where it all began. The secular from the line of Cain. The sacred. From Adam to Abel and now through Seth. So what is recorded of them, of the godly in chapter 5, is that they lived, that they brought into this world those who would carry the torch of the testimony of God to another generation, and that they died. That, that's what we're told there. It's not as gloomy as it seems. It's not as gloomy as it seems, because death for them, death for the believer, death for the one who knows Christ, is not the end, but it's the beginning. It's the beginning. Psalm 116 verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now think about that for a moment. When a person who believes in God and in Christ dies on this earth, there's rejoicing in heaven. Because that person now, in, in, in the state that God has created them in to have that fellowship with God, is now in heaven rejoicing before the very face of God. So death for us is not the end, it is the beginning. And that is why it's not so gloomy to see all of the uh, so-and-so begat this and lived so many years and he died. But now in today's text, the word of God shows us how the godly line continued upon the earth. Adam, the first man on earth, began the godly line. His son Abel lived a godly life but was killed by Cain more than likely before he was able to, to have children. If Abel was indeed the godly one, Cain not being the godly one, but Abel was, yet he was killed. And God raised up another son for the godly line. So we have to, we have to believe that, that he was killed before he was able to have children. But as a result of that, God had to give another son to Adam and Eve, a son through whom the godly seed and descendants would continue. Seth would be that son. Seth would be the son who was to carry on the godly line. Seth would be that son whose godly descendants were to give birth to the Savior. Looking all the way down through that history. The son whose godly descendants were to give birth to the Savior, the Anointed One, the Mashiach, the, 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 the Messiah. The single seed who was to save man from sin, from death, and from eternal judgment. So as we come now to our text once again, verse 25, it says, And Adam knew his wife again. We know that that means that they had their relations together, and she bare a son. And called his name Seth. Notice, she bare the son and called his name Seth. That tells us that Eve was given the privilege of naming her son. For God, said she, has appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. 
Now, similar to Cain's desire to begin afresh, remember he left the presence of the Lord, went out, you know, even though he knew he was to be a wanderer, he wanted to settle down. And he settled down uh, in, in, in the land of Nod and, uh, you know, had a, uh, began his family there at least, uh, maybe not so much began, but maybe just continued his family, named his son Enoch, named the city that he named his son after. Uh, Enoch named the city after the same name. And, and uh, then we see how the line of Cain progressed at that, at that point. But Cain's desire was to begin afresh, and we note here how the new line of Seth commenced. It commenced with a new birth. And the distinction from Cain, though, the distinction from Cain comes in the fact that the new beginning for the godly line was God's doing, aimed at concluding in the person of Jesus Christ. That was the whole purpose. It was God's doing so that through the godly line of, of Seth would come the Messiah of the world, Jesus Christ. It would conclude in the person of Jesus Christ, the woman's promised seed of Genesis 3. And the essential defining of that new line was salvation by faith. Now I want to repeat that because I want you to, I, I want you to understand this. That the essential defining of that new line, the defining of the godly line from Seth on, was salvation by faith. As we see in verse 26. Now we're going to come back to verse 26 in just a moment, but, but, but look at the last phrase. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, what is significant about that phrase? As I said, we're going to come back to this particular phrase in just a moment to study it a little further. But just, just superficially or on the surface, what does that say to us? That you begin to call men upon the Lord. What does that remind you of? Think about the words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 13, when he said, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How interesting. There's a connection then in the godly line of Seth to salvation by faith. That keeps the scriptures consistent. That keeps the doctrine of the Bible consistent. That keeps the, the teachings of, of salvation consistent from Genesis to Revelation. It doesn't change. You're never saved by works. You're saved by grace through faith and that not of itself. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Now to make that clear, what James says in his letter, that we're saved by faith and works, the, 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 the statement has to be understood. We're saved, it is from our salvation that we produce good works. The fruit of our, of our salvation. Not works for salvation, but works from salvation, just to clarify that. But getting back to verse 25 then, we need to come to grips with Seth's name and its meaning. That's why I call this uh, particular uh, study the importance of being Seth. The importance of being Seth. I kind of took that from, uh, you know, there was an old play by Oscar Wilde named The Importance of Being Earnest. And, um, you know, if you, if you know a little bit about the play, you know, there's couple of guys that are wanting to court certain ladies, but you know, they have to use deception and whatnot, you know. 
but uh, it's a comedy type thing. But, but the importance of being Seth is serious. The importance of being Seth is serious and involves no deception whatsoever. The world always involves deception, but not the Lord. And so the importance of being Seth is critical for our understanding of what we just said about salvation by faith. It is clear from verse 25 that Eve has named her newborn son Seth. God has appointed me another seed instead of Abel whom Cain slew. Now even if we were to look at this verse superficially or just on the surface, we can still see that she was relating the birth of Seth to God and acknowledging that the Lord was the source of his birth. Something that no one in, in, in Cain's line is, is said to have done. We never saw that in, in the line of Cain. That there was an acknowledgement that God had brought this line about or that God had brought these people about. So let's contrast this for just a moment. This statement that Eve uh, made, God has appointed me another seed instead of Abel. Let's contrast this for just a moment with Eve's statement at Cain's birth. Just go back to verse 1 of this chapter. And notice what it says. It says, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Now, while I mentioned then, and rightly so, that Eve without a doubt professed a faith in the promise of God for a deliverer. And I did say that. There's a flaw here, nonetheless. I, I did in that, in that first verse, as I was, as I, as I was dealing with it, I, I did want to make real clear that she did profess faith in the promise of a deliverer. But I wanted to save this particular thought for now, that there is a flaw in this statement in verse 1. And the flaw was that she said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. In extent of that thought, it's I have begotten a man from the Lord. I had something to do with this, in other words. Signifying that she had brought forth the man to be the deliverer. And if you remember, I said, you know, she, she did profess her, her faith in the promise. But then she saw Cain grow up. Then she saw Cain do some weird stuff. Then she saw Cain depart from God. Then she realized what she has said. And the lesson that Eve learned from Cain's sad history was that the promised deliverer could not come by her or her husband's own doing but would be a gift from God. And hence the acknowledgement she gives in verse 25 is directly to God. She says God God has appointed me. God has appointed me another son. I want you to think about the lessons that we learn from God in his word. 
when we, when we come to the grips with, with maybe things we've said or things that we've done and we know that, that they're not the things to do before God, and the lesson comes to us, do we then say, wow, let me change how I say things. Let me change how I do things. The lessons. Are we, are we learning from the lessons that God is giving us? That's the point. Think about that in your own heart and in your own life. Eve did. She learned a great lesson and she, and she responded. She changed the way that she did things. She didn't stay, you know, she didn't stay like some people do, very proud and say, I'm not going to change my way. I don't care what God says. She changed. That's a blessing. Make no mistake now, the beginning with God Beginning with God in all things. Beginning with God in all things and staying there is highly important and it's necessary because of the nature of secular humanism today. Beginning with God in all things. Believing that God has granted us all things for life and, 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 and for holiness. That God has given to us through Jesus Christ all the things that we need for life and godliness. The, the beginning with God and saying, you know, God gave us breath, God gave us life, therefore I will serve God to the very end and beyond. That, you know, it's living that way. So beginning with God in all things and staying there. See, not drifting from that, but staying right there in that thought. This is highly important and necessary because of the nature of secular humanism. What is humanism trying to do in our society today? It's trying to take us or take away from us and our children the knowledge of God, the, the, the power of God, the wisdom of God, the word of God, the communication that we can have with God at any time. That's what the world's trying to take away from us. So beginning with God in all things and staying right there is where we need to be. Frankie Schaefer, the son of Francis Schaefer, who I quoted earlier, years ago summed up the history of humanism in all of godless culture this way. He said, humanism has changed the 23rd Psalm. Humanism has changed the 23rd Psalm. And this is how he described it. He said, they began... I am my shepherd. And then they went on to say, sheep are my shepherd. Kind of in the collectivist sense. And then they went to, everything is my shepherd. Until finally they came to this belief, nothing is my shepherd. And that's a dangerous progression, isn't it? It's a declension. It's, it's, it's heading in the wrong, in the, in the wrong direction. What do Christians believe? What, what, what do Judeo-Christians believe? God, the Lord, is my shepherd. I shall not want. I have everything I need because of the Lord. Beginning and end. All that we have is from God. But this is the culture of the world. And as with the culture before the flood, by the way, what we're looking at today is the culture before the flood. So as was the culture before the flood, so now is modern culture. Modern culture goes through these progressions as well, you know. I am my shepherd. I'm my only shepherd. I don't need anybody else. Well, okay, well, we're all, you know, a, a part of some collective society, so sheep are my shepherd. But, but then, you know, possessions come into play and everything is my shepherd. But finally, when it comes right back down to it, nothing is my shepherd. I'm God, right? That's, that's the uh, relativism of this world. That's the philosophy of this world. No more absolutes. 
Therefore, no God who is absolute. Therefore, I can believe what I want to believe. I, my shepherd. Or nothing is my shepherd, but just me. So it's a dangerous cycle. With that in mind, let's get back to the name of Seth, because I did want you to understand the importance of this name. Because in the name of Seth, as well as in the name of his son Enosh, these two names are very significant, very important for our study today, but, but in the name of Seth, as in, in the name of Enosh, is the godly culture's view of man. We see the godly culture's view of man in these two names. Seth's name, by the way, in the Hebrew is truly full of meaning. This little four-letter word name, Seth, at least in the English, is full of meaning. If we were to take all of the definitions and meanings given to this name, we would wonder why it's such a short name. And it is. It's just a short name. But this is what it means. Because each meaning is significant and necessary to understand the godly line. Well, here we go. Seth means... I'm going to give you a number of things, so if you're writing, make sure you write quickly. Seth means, the word Seth in the Hebrew means to set in place. To set in place. It also means to set in place of. To set in place of. Which means that the name of Seth also means appointed. Appointed. It also means replacement or replaces. All of these meanings still going together very well. Set in place, set in place of, appointed and appointed as a replacement or replaces. It also means approved. It means approved. The name also means compensation. And it also means substitute. Now, some of your Bibles may have in your margins some of these particular statements I made. Altogether, those are the meanings of the one little word, Seth. And none of them contradict, all of them work together in this name. Now, the Lord has indeed set another seed in place of Abel. The Lord has indeed set another seed in the place of Abel, who was the godly one. This new seed, Seth, was set in place by God, appointed by God as a replacement. He was approved by God as a substitute to bring about the line leading to the promised one. That's a pretty full understanding now of all of these meanings put together in the name of Seth. But now consider this, if you will. The promised one himself, the Messiah, the anointed one, would himself come as appointed and granted by God. By the way, put granted in there because that's also another meaning of the word said. The Messiah was, a, was appointed and granted by God. Now what does it mean to grant? It just simply means to give. And where's the greatest understanding of the word give for us? It's in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. 
His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We'll come back to that verse in a minute. But that is where we see God's approval and granting and giving in that word gave. He gave his only begotten son. So Messiah was appointed and granted by God the Father to do what? To be the substitute for fallen man. The substitute for fallen man to make atonement. Now we've heard the word atonement. If you look at, at, at some, some of the, 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 the deeper meanings of the word atonement, you realize one of those words is compensation. So God the Father has appointed and granted Jesus to be the substitute for fallen man to make atonement or compensation by being the propitiation, which brings us back to substitute. By the way, the word propitiation literally means atoning sacrifice. By being the atoning sacrifice or the substitute for the sins of men through his shed blood. Do you notice now the similarities here? The comparisons, as it were, between Seth and Jesus. Seth, in essence, now being a type of the Messiah. The godly line. But Seth pointing to and directing our attention to and targeting the Messiah. But all of these things apply. Let's consider just this one word, propitiation, if you will. Which centers into our understanding of the name of Seth as well. Paul in Romans chapter 3 verses 23 through 25 says, For all have sinned. And come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, notice, has set forth to be a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice, and a substitute through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. He, uh, he alone is our propitiation. He alone is our atoning sacrifice. He alone has become our substitute in our place on the cross. Shedding his own blood for the forgiveness of our sins. If you go to 1 John chapter 2 verses 1 and 2, you find this word again, propitiation. Where it says, my little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I want you to notice how many times the word righteous is mentioned here. Both in the last passage that we read and in this one. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is our advocate. He is our attorney before the Father. And it says, and he is the propitiation. He is the atoning sacrifice. He has become that substitute for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does that mean? That means that Jesus came to die for the sins of all men who were created in the image of God. But were born into sin because of the sin of Adam. But the effectual working of that is only toward those who believe in Jesus Christ. Who will believe in Christ. If we go down a couple of chapters to 1 John 4 verse 10. It says herein is love. Here is, here is where you will see what love is. Herein is love. Not that we love God. But that he loved us. 
and sent his son, gave, approved his coming to be our compensation, our atonement, our propitiation, our substitute. Sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so in one little name, Seth, we can see the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the name, Seth, we see the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and therefore we see the importance of being Seth. There was a need for a Seth, and the importance of being Seth is made clear in his name. Without their being a godly line, what hope would we have? Without there being a godly line that was pointing to that deliverer, that promised deliverer, without that we have nothing. The importance of being Seth. What does that also teach us? Something I said before, the Lord never leaves us. I should say the Lord never leaves himself without a witness. There's always a witness. The Lord left his witness in the line of Seth. Seth is this. What we learn about God in this name, Seth, is this. What we learn about God is that the Lord God, creators of the heaven and earth, was faithful to his word and his promise. That's what we learn about God here. That the Lord was faithful to his word and his promise. He said he would send a deliverer. The deliverer would come through the line of Seth. This would be the godly line. In contrast to and in distinction of the ungodly line of Cain. And what a keeper of promises God is. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God. Notice. The faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. I think it's important there to note that we need to love the Lord. We need to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we need to keep his commandments. Now, total trust and dependence in God is the great lesson that every person must learn. From Adam all the way through to the very last person that will ever be. Total trust and dependence in God is the great lesson that every person must learn. No person will ever know the promises of God, uh, not personally uh, know them, unless he casts himself totally upon God. A person must totally trust God if he wants to be restored to the perfect life that Adam and Eve originally had with God. If a person wants to live forever, if a person wants to triumph over sin, over death, and over hell, he must trust God. He must depend upon God for salvation. No person can save himself. No person can save himself. A person does not even have the power to save himself from accidents, from diseases, from sickness, much less from sin and death. None of us have that power. That is why we see in the scripture, Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9, to begin. By the way, Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9 is the very center of the Bible. It is the very center. I mean, all of the verses on either side all add up to the same number of verses, right to, this, to these two, verses 8 and 9. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. 
It's better to trust in the Lord and to put just confidence in, 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 in common man, but it's even better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in those who man has raised up in, in, in some kind of a royal sense, as it were, or leadership sense, as it were. It's just better always to trust God. It's better to trust the Lord than to trust in man. If you get back to John 3.16 and verse 17 for a moment, notice what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave. Again, connected to the, word of, uh, to the name of Seth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him, the world through him might be saved. We're not saved by what we do. We're not saved by what man says. We're not saved by man at all. We are saved by the mercies and grace of God through Jesus Christ and through the person and work of Christ. The work being, of course, the things that he did to accomplish that salvation by dying on the cross for our sins, by shedding his blood for our forgiveness, and by rising again from the dead. And this was the great lesson that Adam and Eve had learned. They had learned this after the fall. They, they, had, they had had that perfect fellowship with the Lord. But they had to learn this now after they fell. But they were able to do only that which we do. They were only able to do that which we do. What do we do today? We look around. We see all the sin, we see all the evil and the corruption in this world. We see the accidents and the diseases and the sicknesses and, and the death upon earth. That's what they had to do after the fall. Adam and Eve had to, had to see all the sin and evil and corruption and, and all the accidents and diseases and sickness and death upon the earth. They just looked around. You see, between the birth of Cain and Seth, they saw it all. It was happening even then. They saw it all. And they learned the great lesson of life. And here's the great lesson of life. Only God could provide salvation. Only God could bring the Savior into the world. That's the great lesson of life, folks. You know, there are guys that climb, there are guys that climb mountains up to, you know, to get to a pinnacle, you know, to maybe, maybe go and just, you know, find themselves. Or they go to some guru in, in, in some far off land and they say, teach us the meaning of life. You know, what's the secret of life? What's the secret of success in life? You might even get that from some televangelist, you know. Folks, the real lesson of life, the greatest lesson of life is that only God can give salvation. Only God can bring the Savior of the world into the world. Only God. And this is what we see in the name of Seth. But add to that now what we find in, in Seth giving birth to a son. And it says to us, uh, or in having a son, it says, And to Seth, to him also there was born a son. Verse 26. And he called his name Enosh. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. So Seth now has a son and he names him Enosh or Enos. But Enosh is really more correct because it, it involves the word man. The man is ish. So Enosh is, is, is involved in the word. But the word Enosh together means frail one or mortal man. Frail man or mortal man. That's what the name Enosh means. 
And this name was certainly a reminder for Seth and a reminder to Seth and to his line that for all of man's boastful progress, if we're to go back and look at uh, what man did in chapter 4 earlier, for all of man's boastful progress, man is weak and man is finite. Man is weak and man is finite. God said, on the day that you eat of the uh, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall begin to die. You've died spiritually, but you will begin to die uh, physically. That's what chapter 5 teaches us also. The length of, of man's life. But you see, that's what, what Seth is saying in the name of his son. Man is weak and man is finite. No matter how long his days may be prolonged on this earth, sooner or later they must come to an end. All because of sin, but they must come to an end. Seth may have been so impressed, you see, with a weakness of mere human beings that he gave his son this name to communicate this truth. Instead of boasting about himself, as Lamech did, Lamech boasted about himself. Seth confessed his need for God. And Seth confessed his need for God by naming his son Enosh. Man is weak. Man is frail. Man is mortal. Man needs God. It's a confession. It would be wise for us, you see, to take note of Seth's view of man and of human nature. His view doesn't mean that he was discouraged, by the way. His view doesn't mean that he was discouraged and depressed over the nature of man. We, we, we can kind of sometimes get a little bit discouraged, depressed, sometimes disappointed. As we look around the world today and see the way man treats man, the way man you know, treats the knowledge of God, the way man does the things that he does uh, to one another, to the creation, to this earth, as it were. But, but Seth's view doesn't mean that he was discouraged. It doesn't mean that he was depressed over the nature of man or that, or that even that he wallowed in, in self-pity, moaning about the pains or, or the hurts and the frailties of the human body or, or the diseases and the tragedies that, were, that are suffered or, or the awful consequences and conditions and circumstances of life that many endure today or even the terrible state of the world. Seth was merely facing the reality of life in all of its stages and realizing that they should cause us to seek after God and depend upon God. To seek after God and depend upon God. I think of the cries of Job where it says in Job 10 verse 9 and it says many times and many other things some some even deeper than this but Job said remember I beseech thee that thou hast made me as the clay and wilt thou bring me into dust again there was that knowledge of of the frailty that uh, he realized himself having before an infinite God or the psalmist who says in Psalm 8 verse 4 David being the psalmist here. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. But, but, but what is man? 
God, what is man that you're mindful of him? I mean, we're just dust, aren't we? And yet you're mindful of us? Wow. Or what it says in in Psalm 103, verses 14 and 15, For he knoweth our frame. God knows what we're made of. God made us. For he knoweth our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. God remembers that we're dust. I don't know about you, but I don't like dust very much. Dust makes me sneeze. Dust, dust makes me feel miserable. You know, <laughs> you know, you start choking on dust. You can choke on dust. Makes, dust makes you sneeze. Dust, dust can do all kinds of weird stuff because dust carries all kinds of, of, of bacteria or whatever and all kinds of other stuff. And, uh, I don't like dust. Does anybody here like dust? But God remembers that we are dust, and yet he does what? He still loves us. Aren't you glad that God doesn't sneeze? Where would we be if he sneezed us out of the picture? It is a sneeze when he sees us. He remembers that we're dust. Maybe we need to remember one other thing. God breathed into us life. We only have life because God breathed life into us. We're just dust. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3.20 says, All go unto one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. That's just reality after the fall. But I like what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24 and verse 25. He says, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. This is the word. Life. Eternal life. Through Jesus Christ. We may be but dust. But God loves us. And what makes God so wonderful is the the fact that even though we may be as dust, he still knows us by name. He knew our beginning even before the foundations of the world. And he'll know us when he sees us before his throne. Today we all worry about being a number. God has the hairs of our head numbered, but he knows us. And he loves us. Lastly, we want to look at the last statement of verse 26 of our text that says, Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. There's indication in this statement of a spiritual resurgence after a clear decline from the fall of man and through the description of the ungodly line of Cain. It suggests that the godly line confessed and called upon the Lord God with a renewed spirit. 
We know that Adam and Eve knew what it was to walk in a fellowship face to face with God. Adam had known the glory of a perfect body, a perfect environment, and a perfect fellowship and communion with God. He knew what it was to have God looking after him. But after the fall, and all throughout the rest of his life, he must have sought God, longing for his presence and for his fellowship. There was, in Adam's life at least, the semblance of personal prayer and devotion, of personal worship and of praise in honoring the God who had created him. And I'm sure that Adam did what any person would do after experiencing such a wonderful and sweet fellowship with God. What did he do? He taught his children to give their hearts and their lives personally to God in worship. Why is it that we see early on in chapter 4 that Abel and Cain both bring sacrifice or offerings, I should say, to the Lord? It tells us what Cain, what, what, I should say, what Adam did in teaching Cain and Abel about God. But the fact is, Abel learned and did. Cain rejected and did his own thing. But this phrase in verse 26, that men began to call upon the name of the Lord, strongly suggests also the beginning of a regular and a public worship of the Lord. And in this case, what some have said is the first revival of godly hearts prompted by a deeper sense of the frailty and mortality of human life. Now, I've always believed that true revival begins in the heart of a single person. Just this, this, you know, uh, the single heart of a person. That's where revival begins. Because that person realizes what they are in the presence of God and what they need from God to continue on. A revived heart. A heart that's alive once again with God. Because the world has a way of dragging us down to where we're no longer trusting the Lord. God says, trust in me. It's coming back to trusting in God. That's what true revival is. And while there can be great revivals of hundreds and thousands of people, True revival still begins in one heart. This could also be the beginning of the practice of prayer, some have said, both individually and corporately. To seek the power and the presence of a holy God in the midst of a perverse and increasingly wicked world. That's what was happening. Here we see the line of Cain going out into the world and, and actually growing and spreading in this evil uh, of, of wanting to live a life without God. And so there had to be then this, this counterpoint, as it were, of seeking the power and the presence of God in the midst of that increasingly wicked world. So this was indeed then an act of faith on the part of those who called upon the name of the Lord. And we are called upon to have that continuing act of faith in our lives, to trust the Lord on a daily basis. To depend upon him daily, hourly, every minute of our lives. It's surrendering ourselves to the goodness and mercy and grace of God. But it's also surrendering ourselves to the power 
and the awesomeness of a holy God. Paul in, in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, I mean he's begging these people, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, separate, in other words, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. What is reasonable about worship? See, what is the reason, think about it, what is the reason for worship, and, and, and what is reasonable worship? Reasonable worship is not half-heartedness, it is wholeheartedness toward God. That's the only reasonable worship there can be. It is being wholehearted, whole-minded, whole-everything before God. And giving Him all the praise, honor, and glory. So that is our reasonable service. To give of ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy, set apart, acceptable unto God. And be not conformed to this world, verse 2, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. The mind needs to be renewed. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Psalm 95, verse 6 says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel. Let us come before the Lord who made us, you see. We're coming to the God who made us, and we are worshiping Him. We are calling upon Him. We are praying to Him. We are seeking Him. We're waiting upon Him to speak to our hearts. Psalm 119, verse 2 says, Blessed are they that keep His testimonies and that seek Him with the whole heart. Notice, it isn't half-heartedness, it is wholeheartedness. I hope you came today to worship the Lord with all of your heart, not just half of it. God didn't just make half of us. He made, he made us whole. And we worship him with a whole heart. Jeremiah 29, verses 11 through 14, one of the great passages of Scripture. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end, to give you a future and a hope. Then shall you call upon me, God says. Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And you shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord. If you seek me and find me, you, you do so because you search for me with all your heart. Not half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly. And I will be found by you. You'll find me. When you search for me with all your heart. God will take away captivities. He will gather us. He will bring us again to the place where he wants us to be. In the last two verses of Genesis chapter 4. We now have the glimmer of hope. To take the godly line through the worldwide flood. And we're also taught the importance of preserving the knowledge of God. While we live in a society filled to overflowing in secular humanism and godlessness. We have the hope in these two verses that God is faithful to keep that line from Seth to Jesus intact and never broken. Always whole. And I leave you with Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus Christ. God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth.
that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is my encouragement for you today that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We can do so because of why Jesus came, what Jesus did in coming, what Jesus is going to do when he comes again. We need to be ready. So we hope and pray that our understanding has grown considerably in the issues of faith and salvation by faith. That it wasn't just an idea born out of some kind of evolutionary process within the Word of God from the very beginning. We are saved by faith. And I hope and pray that you know that you are without any doubt in that godly line of Seth. Appointed, approved, given, by God. So that you will find yourself before the Lord on that last day safe and in his kingdom forever and ever. Amen. Shall we pray?